editor, Rodney Clapp. To the prize. Turns his attention into one of the most commonly 
and aggression. In other words, it's delicious. It tastes good to have a group of people to stereotype and villainize while humanity's been doing it forever. It's easy to have people to scapegoat to turn into the source of all our problems. That way we don't have to ask the difficult questions and live in the reality that sometimes we just don't know. But of course, Jesus is smarter than all that. He knows that the source of the issue isn't about Romans at all. It's about our own insecurities, our very inmost fears. If we can build a system to rationalize bad things happening, then we can rationalize why something bad happened to them and why it should not happen to us. In other words, it gives us an opportunity to believe that somehow we might be better than them. It gives us an opportunity to set ourselves above the people we think we don't want to become, whether it's the perceived victims or victimizers. We find ourselves not willing to be in either position, and so we create a rational-seeming system to separate ourselves from them. Seems simple enough. Now, you might have noticed in our epistle from t for today, from Corinthians, it seems like Paul is taking a similar tack. He brings up several uh, situations, and uh, particularly striking examples. You know, 23,000 died in a single day here from uh, what Paul sees to be sexual immorality and this and that. And yet, uh, what's harder to perceive there is that uh, rather than trying to sort of create some systematic uh, belief why this happened to those folk and not to other folk, Paul is, uh, in a rather striking way, actually trying to give some pastoral guidance to his congregation. In some ways, I think that him we sang just before the gospel says it a little better than Paul did himself. It's a reminder to continue in in faithfulness and in faithful obedience to God, and a reminder that through God we are able to endure many great difficulties. It's not a this versus them scenario, but it's an opportunity that Paul is taking to look back on the history of his people to understand how we might learn for the future, how his people might learn for their future. He was trying to call his people to look inwardly at themselves and at their own history. Now, over the last few weeks, all of us who live in this modern world have been inundated with breathless 24-hour news coverage from the front lines of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Don't even think about turning on the TV or the radio or checking the news anywhere without being heaped with a mountain of anxiety-producing spin about every conceivable detail of this conflict, with more expert interviews than I thought could ever exist in my life. But of course, for those of us in the United States, one of the results has been to galvanize American outrage, not just at the Russian president or military, but at all things Russian. It's so easy for us to take these things to the extreme because of our nationalistic temptations. We've, you've heard the reports of things like uh, Americans pouring out uh, bottles
Russian-sounding names that are actually produced in the United States, boycotting Russian restaurants that turn out to be owned by Ukrainian immigrants, or perhaps for me the most personally striking, the dramatic overuse of the word oligarchs to describe billionaire business people who exercise undue influence in their government. I have never heard the word oligarchs so many times in the span of a month as we all have recently. But of course, we have to think about it, don't we? It's easy to forget that we on this side may not be so different as we like to believe. I've never heard the word oligarch to describe anybody in this country. No, we like to think that our billionaires are the good billionaires, that, that ours don't exercise outsized influence in politics and policy, but of course theirs do, that our economic system doesn't contribute to the degradation of the poor and to the average people in this country, but theirs does, that our political system and our military system don't participate in things that would challenge our heart, mind, and souls, but theirs do. No, it's easy for us to live in that world of uh, nationalistic outrage, that, that uh, self-setting above others, but we as Christians don't have that privilege, especially in the season of Lent. No, Jesus just doesn't allow us to enjoy that smug satisfaction. Jesus is such a buzzkill, really is. Now, this week's Gospel, beloved, was a bit of a new taste, a, a forgotten flavor, if you will, that you couldn't quite put your finger on. The Hebrew scripture this week is like apple pie or your grandma's best mac and cheese. You know the one. I can return to the burning bush story over and over and over. Without a doubt, beloved, I always relate to Moses' uncertainty, his hesitancy, and his self-doubt. And I can always appreciate God's fervency and seeking Moses in an unmistakable sign, and his reassurance that God was preparing Moses for what would be an unimaginable journey. But like any perfect dish, maybe the 10th or 20th or 50th time you taste it, you find little hints of something that you never quite noticed before. This time, I took particular attention to find uh, in Moses his humility, and in God, God's mercy. Not unlike Jesus in today's gospel, we find Moses in a time of his people's profound suffering. And again, we have this central question, why is there all this suffering, and where is God in it? Who is going to lead our people out of all this suffering? But notice, the question doesn't return to selfish anger as it did in our gospel. No, instead we're drawn to, again, mercy and humility. I want you to notice in particular what God says in our Hebrew scripture. First, God calls Moses into a posture of humble listening. Remove the sandals from your feet, for you're standing on holy ground. Then God assures Moses and us that our world is indeed, that our Lord is indeed listening. 
I've observed, he says, God says, the mystery, of, the misery of my people who are in Egypt. God's, God points out that God has heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. In other words, God's first posture in a time of suffering is that God sits there and listens. God draws near to us. God hears the cry of God's people and does not ignore it. Our Lord comes down to Moses and meets him by the side of the road. And this God doesn't send a distant thunderbolt from heaven, but instead stands beside him in the warmth of an enemy flame. Have you ever sat by the comfort of a nice warm fire on a chilly day and just felt the crackle of it against your skin? Sometimes that's how I imagine it must have felt for Moses there at the burning bush. That warm crackle of comfort. God is with you. And notice that Moses here doesn't turn to the consuming fury of one who craves to, the, to devour the Egyptians for, the, for their oppression of his people. No, Moses pulls up beside God with the genuine curiosity and humility to ask, Who am I, and how am I to do these things? Now maybe when you've read this story before, certainly what I have, I've thought of Moses' questioning as a negative quality, as uncertainty, as failing to trust in God's promise for him and his life. But as I read it again this week, Moses' questions again strike me anew as a powerful and beautiful testament, especially for the uncertain times in which we live. Moses doesn't arrive with an attitude of self-righteousness. He doesn't claim or pretend to have all the answers right away. He doesn't come with a systematic theological framework of why this evil is happening to whom and what ought to be done about it. No, instead he removes his sandals, sits with God and listens. And God says, I am. Beloved, this Lent, just as many of us choose to give up some tasty but unhealthy food for Lent, I invite you to fast of self-righteousness the same way we fast of foods. Take some time to sit there with Moses at the foot of that burning bush and feel that crackle of God's warmth against your skin. Turn off the news for a while. Put, off, put aside our nationalism and self-righteous anger. Put aside our desire for easy answers. We don't need those right now. Don't try to systematize the world's pain or figure out who to blame for it all, why it's all happening to whom. Avoid that us-versus-them reasoning. Instead, just listen to the God who hears our cry in the wilderness, who comforts us in our pain. God calls each one of us to be healers of the world's pain, but only if 
can take the time to listen. Lent is that perfect time to sit down and listen again, just as God listened to the cry of the Israelites in bondage. So as we close, I want to share with you a poem I came across this week. It's called, When You Meet Someone Deep in Grief, by Patricia McKernan Runkle. Slip off your knees and set them by the door. Enter barefoot this darkened chapel, hallowed by loss, hallowed by sorrow. Its stone gray walls and floor, you, congregation of one, are here to listen, not to sing. Kneel in the back 